The teaching from this evening is based on the scripture reading from Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 to 26. This is God's word. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore a son, Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain was a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, and you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground and has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. And when you work the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I should be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest anyone who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Now Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. And when he built a city, he called the name of the city after his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahujel, and Mahujel fathered Methushel, and Methushel fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of one was Ada, and the name of the other was Zillah. Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Naamah. Now Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And at that time people began to call upon the name of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. So we're in the midst of a, of a series here in the book of Genesis, and uh, tonight, or jeez, this morning, we're looking at uh, uh, Genesis chapter 4, and this story that I trust is, is probably quite familiar to many of you, um, the story of Cain and Abel, these two brothers. And uh, just to give you a little bit of intro to what we're doing, uh, we're looking at Genesis chapters 1 through 11. Uh, over these several weeks, and then we're going to take a break, and we're going to go and look at the early chapters in the book of Romans, uh, chapters 1 through 4, and then we'll drop back in to Genesis for a while and, and sort of use those two books as conversation partners to help us 
to see the whole story of the Bible. And uh, arguably those two books are uh, absolutely foundational for understanding uh, what the Bible is all about and the good news that we find in it. And so when we come to Genesis, uh, we're, we're coming to the very first book uh, that is often referred to as the first of the five books of Moses. Moses being the main character of these five books, uh, God's prophet uh, that he called to bring his people out of Egypt who had been in slavery for 400 years. And he writes these to remind God's people who they are, uh, where they're from, what they're called to be and to do. And we're going to begin with Genesis 1 through 11 to help us understand what does God want us people to know. And we've already begun with chapter 1 where we saw God's work week of creation, followed by chapter 2, which zooms in on that first week, specifically day 6 when God made uh, Adam and Eve after his own image and laid out what is God's original design and intention for human flourishing. And then we looked at chapter 3, which describes and explains, well, why is our experience so radically different from what we find in chapter 2 of Genesis? And as we come this morning to chapter 4, here we find the story of, of ordinary human experience after the first disobedience of Adam and Eve in the garden. And it's the story of Cain and Abel. And there are two marks in this story. It's a long chapter, but uh, there are essentially two marks of this story that I want us to look at. And it's tragedy and mercy. Tragedy and mercy. So we're going to look at, uh, use those as, that as our two headings. The tragedy of Cain and the mercy of God. So let's look at first the tragedy of Cain. And uh, to help you kind of keep track of of what we see here, the tragedy of Cain uh, comes to us under three basic ingredients. His jealousy, his refusal, and his legacy. Cain's tragedy involves his jealousy, his refusal, and his legacy. So first is jealousy. If you notice in the first two verses here, uh, we're introduced to, again, Adam and Eve from chapters 1 and 2. And uh, if you remember... There was a promise made, uh, even after Adam and Eve sinned against God, that God would, uh, there would be a seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head. And even as tragic as chapter 3 is, we're still meant to anticipate God's not done yet. And so when we come to chapter 4, verse 1, and it says, Now Adam knew his wife. In the Bible, that word to know isn't just information. It's first and foremost relational and of the deepest, richest, most intimate kind. Describing the vulnerability and the intimacy of a husband and a wife. Adam knew his wife. And we're, in, we're expected right here to be thinking, okay, is this the promised seed that's coming that God promised to champ, be the champion and rescue his people? And we're introduced to Cain first, who is a a worker of the ground. He's a farmer. And also Abel, who is a herdsman. He's a cattle farmer. He tends sheep. And what we notice right away is that uh, at some point, they, in verse 3, Cain brings an offering to the Lord 
from, his, from the ground, from the work that he does. And then Abel brings an offering to the Lord, a sacrifice, the firstborn of his flock. But then we notice that in verse 4, we're told that God had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, God did not have any regard. That God preferred Abel's over Cain's, and here is where the story begins to unfold and unravel. Cain's jealousy begins to take root. And it's worth asking a question that has, uh, I think, troubled and stumped Bible commentators uh, from the earliest days of commentating on this passage is, well, what is it about Abel's offering that God likes better than Cain's offering? And if we're just taking the text as it is, is written, nowhere in the, in the text does it actually say why God preferred Abel's offering over Cain's. And in fact, if we remember that, again, this was written to God's people after 400 years in slavery, on their way to the promised land, we need to remember that this book is part of the five books of Moses. And in those five books of Moses are also all of God's instructions about various offerings. Offerings that presuppose things are not right between God and his people and he's making a way for them to have a relationship with him. And in fact, Cain's offering is just as valid in light of these five books as Abel's. Cain's offering is referred to as a produce offering. You can read about those in Leviticus chapter 2 and Deuteronomy 26. And Abel's offering is an offering of the firstborn. You can read about that in Deuteronomy chapter 15. So if both of these offerings are both valid in light of the scriptures as a whole, then what's left for us to, to look at, to try to discern what is it about this situation that would cause God to prefer Abel's offering over Cain? And we're left with the two men. And even more than that, we're left with the hearts of these two men. The reason that God favors Abel's offering over Cain is because Abel comes with a heart and love with God. Cain comes resentful, jealous, angry, despondent. The narrative ends up showing us the character of Cain, and Abel is his opposite. In other words, at the very beginning, the tragedy of Cain is really a heart that is hard, a heart that uses God's good instructions, God's name, the worship of God for his own ends, not as ends in themselves, to delight in him and to enjoy God. And in fact, later on in Hebrews chapter 11, we're told that it is by faith that Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. The difference between these two men isn't their offerings or their sacrifice. It's hearts of faith. Now you might be thinking, well, does that mean that God loved Abel because he just had strong faith? And the answer would be no, because biblical faith is never 
attached to. God never looks on us and says, hey, because you have strong faith, I will accept you. It's the opposite. Those who have faith recognize they have no power in themselves. They have no strength in themselves. True faith, biblical faith, God celebrates because it delights in him. It looks to him and rejoices in him alone. That's where these two men are so radically different. And so it does, I think, present us with the question, what happens when our hearts are in love with anything other than God? Cain is the answer. Cain is in this story to help us to see, to, by way of illustration and example, what happens to the human heart when we live by anything other than faith, trusting in him, delighting in him. So that's the first part here, is, is Cain's jealousy. But then there's not only his jealousy, it, his jealousy then bubbles over into his refusal. Notice what happens here. After we're told that God favored Abel's offering over Cain, it says that Cain was very angry and his face fell. I think we get the angry bit fairly straightforwardly. That idea that his face fell simply means he became depressed, discouraged, despondent. He was despairing. But notice what God does. He says, God pursues him. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? And then verse 7 He says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door. It's it's desirous for you, but you must rule over it. What does he do when, when God discovers and sees Cain's anger and discouragement and despair? He moves towards him. He offers him wise counsel. He enters into Cain's situation and invites him to respond in relationship. But then notice, uh, again, in verse 9 and 10, even though Cain, he refuses this invitation and this advice, because in verse 8 we see that this anger has bubbled over into actual action, not just internal resentment, but now physical murder, killing his brother. But even in the midst of that tragedy, God comes to him and says, where is, your, is Abel, your brother? Now, it's not that God doesn't know where Abel is. Again, God is coming to Cain, inviting him to enter in, despite his, his sin, despite his anger, despite his refusal. But notice what Cain does. In verse 13 and 14, he essentially argues with God and says, your punishment is too severe for me. And the reason he says that is really out of fear for his own personal safety, which is utterly ironic in this story. He's just murdered his own brother. And Cain's response to God's just judgment for his actions is, I'm afraid something might happen to him. Someone might kill me. Again, Cain, his anger and his despondency is blinding. In verse 16, finally, Despite the fact that God or that, that Cain 
objects to God's judgment, God says, hey, I'm still going to protect you. Despite what you've been doing, in spite what you're like, I will protect you. And notice what Cain does, though. Verse, end of verse 16, he goes away from the presence of the Lord. Refusal after refusal after refusal. Which then brings us to his legacy. What is the outcome of this tragic story of Cain? Well, when you look in verses 17 to 24, we're introduced to Cain's family. That he has children. And the main character of his descendants is this, this character in verses 23 to 24, who is Lamech. And Lamech describes for us in the greatest detail the legacy of Cain. That Cain's legacy through his descendants, specifically Lamech, is marked by boasting, revenge, and violence, and threats. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. So the very anger and rage and resentment that we see in Cain is now bubbling over in greater amounts with more pride and ambition and bravado in Lamech. But not only that, notice in verse 19, Lamech took two wives. The name of one was Ada and the name of the other Zillah. Now, unless we're we keep in mind where we are already in the story. This is an ongoing, unfolding, breaking down, disintegration of the beautiful, innocent relationship that God had given Adam when he gave him his wife Eve. Flesh of his flesh, bone of his bone. That the man would leave his father and mother and become one with his wife. They would be devoted to each other and to no other. Here what we have is the first instance of a polygamous marriage in the scriptures. And, you know, oftentimes, and rightly so, people will read the Old Testament and ask the question, well, how come there's so much of that? How come these kings of Israel have all these wives and God doesn't seem to really say anything about that. Well, what you need to realize is you have to really pay attention to the story. Because a consistent theme throughout the entire Bible is wherever there is a marriage that deviates in any way from that first original marriage design in Genesis chapter 2 ends in misery. It brings misery upon the, the family. It brings misery upon the children and the kingdom and the whole nation of Israel. Here what we have is Cain's legacy brings up about disintegration and breakdown. And lastly, what we notice about his legacy, the line of Cain is never mentioned again in the Bible. Never mentioned again. Cain goes off away from the presence of the Lord to the east of Eden, which is really, if you think of it, an echo 
of God's judgment from Genesis 3. He's banished from the ground. He's banished from the presence of God, even further away from God's presence. Things are getting worse. And it highlights the consistent movement here away from God, our alienation, and yet our great need to be restored. So that's the tragedy of Cain. But what about the mercy of God? I want you to to look here with me real quickly at verse 1 again. Adam knew his wife Eve. Look at verse 25. And Adam knew his wife again. Those phrases bracket this whole story. And remember what I said earlier, that those two phrases are linked to Genesis chapter 3. And this promise that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head, but the serpent would bite the seed of the woman's heel. Here's the context for it. We're we're expected to think when we come into chapter 4, okay, are Cain, is it going to be Cain or Abel? Will this be the seed? And what we've just witnessed is, no, they're not, neither of them. Because Abel's dead and Cain has wants nothing to do with God, nor do any of his descendants. So then what? Is that the end of the story? Verse 25 says, no. Adam and Eve have another son, Seth. And in complete contrast to everything we've just seen, verse 26 says, to Seth also was, was born, a son was born, and he, he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Complete contrast to Cain. And in fact, these are the two trajectories of the rest of the story of the Bible. Those who call upon the name of the Lord, recognizing their need for forgiveness and grace and mercy, and those who rebel against him and go it alone. Now, how do we see God's mercy in all of this? Well, quite simply, God's not giving up on his promise. As tragic as Cain's story is, not even human sin and rebellion and anger and resentment and despair and murder and infidelity and immorality can keep God from keeping his promises to rescue sinners. And how does he do that? How do we see God's mercy in the midst of this tragedy? Well, let's look again back into Cain's story at some details that we've already touched on, but dig down a little bit more. First of all, what I want you to see, we see God's mercy and that God provides freedom to confess. Freedom to confess. Remember, verse 6, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? You know, it is very hard when you're angry, when life crosses you, or you feel like God has crossed you, it is very hard to want to talk about that. And yet God comes to us and he says, perhaps he's even saying to you this morning, why are you angry? Why are you despairing? Not because you shouldn't be, but because he wants to know about it. He wants to know you 
and you to know him. And in doing so, to experience the transforming power of his mercy in your life that can draw out that anger and that despair, that discouragement, and make you new. God provides freedom for us to confess. And then he also, he does it again. Even after Cain kills his brother, verse 9, where, where's Abel, your brother? Tell me, what's happened? I know what's happened, but come to me. Talk to me about it. Your actions, your behavior, your failure cannot prevent me from wanting to pursue you and have a relationship with you and for you to know what it's like to be able to tell me the truth. I am not put off by the truth of your life. Talk to me about it. That's God's mercy to us. He provides freedom to confess, but he also provides wisdom for living. Look, verse 7. If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. If you notice here, you might, you might be a little bit... Um, the first phrase of verse 7 might grate against you. If you do well, will you not be accepted? That might strike you as, as God saying, All right, Cain, if you, do, if you jump through the hoops, then I'll love you. Remember, what's the context here? It's two men coming to God with sacrifices, with offerings. And again and again, what we discover in the Bible is that the sacrifices of God are a broken and contrite spirit. When God says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? This is a way of God saying, doing well before me is accepting admitting the fact you cannot do anything to earn my favor. You are utterly dependent upon me. Coming to me with a broken and contrite spirit, laying before me your entire life, not just the fruit of the ground or the firstborn of your flock. Those are emblematic of something much deeper and richer and more glorious. But then notice, he continues with this wisdom for life. He says, if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. This is perhaps one of the most vivid pictures of sin in all of the Bible in such short, um, short number of words. Sin is here personified as like a, a prowling predator that is conniving and sneaky and hidden and silent but watching you, smelling you, observing your every move, knowing your every place, waiting when you are the most vulnerable, waiting to strike and ready to pounce in order to ruin you. It's why I have on the front of our bulletin a couple quotes from uh, John Owen who lived many hundreds of years ago who would say, either you be killing sin or it will be killing you. That's what we're being told here. God is giving us a very clear, honest picture of the character of sin. And to not heed this counsel is disastrous. And if you're not sure if that's true, what happens right after Cain refuses to 
received this wise counsel. He kills his brother. Do not be deceived in thinking that's not you. Or that won't happen to you. That's the the power of this story. God is providing us wisdom for living. And in fact, verse 7 is really an echo of Adam's test in in chapter 2, verse 17, when God says, you can eat of any tree in the the garden. Just don't eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, because when you do, you will die. And God says here, sin is crouching at at your door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. And he fails the test. And here's the sad thing. We do too. You cannot outrun this crouching predator. You are powerless to rule over the very thing that wants to kill you. And so what are we supposed to do? Well, I think... To look at it from the inside, I, I want us to, to use some words from the Apostle Paul that help give us a window in on what this is like. In Romans chapter 7, Paul writes, I find, to be a law, I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Think sin crouching at your door. I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind. And making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am. That's a really dismal picture. It's an admission. I can't get out of this problem. Well, then what's the solution? Paul writes, who will deliver me from this body of death? And he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. How does Jesus do that? How does Jesus set us free, protect us from this crouching predator that wants to kill you? A little earlier in Romans 6, Paul writes, We know that our old self was crucified with him, that is Jesus, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, that body that is powerless, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Let me put it to you like this. Jesus is the only match for this prowling, crouching predator. Remember, Abel's blood cried out from the ground to God. We read earlier from Hebrews that there is, there is a blood that speaks a better word than Abel's blood. It's the blood of Jesus. Jesus crucified on the cross for sinners. Now then, if that's true, what does it mean to be a Christian? Let me put it like this. Some of us, I think, if you're here and, and you're a Christian, even if you're not here, you need to hear, if you're not a Christian, you need to hear this. A Christian is not a forgiven old you. A forgiven old you who is powerless and destined to repeat and live in the same patterns, the same enslaved life. That is not what it is to be a Christian. Hopeless and despairing. Oh, it's, I'm glad I'm forgiven, but I, this is just my lot. I'm never going to be any different. 
No, a Christian is a forgiven new you in relationship with Jesus. A forgiven new you united to Jesus. What does that mean? Jesus represents you. You don't represent yourself anymore. His record is your record. And he now lives in you by his spirit to enable you to rule over sin. You are a forgiven new you. I want you to think about that. Do you believe that? Despite what you see in your life, you are not a forgiven old you. You are a forgiven new you. That means that you and I have to do what Paul says. We have to consider ourselves, reckon ourselves dead to sin and alive to God, regardless of how we feel or think in any given moment. Being dead to sin and alive to God is more true for you than breathing. You were forgiven new you. The story of Cain, it's here because it's the normal experience of life, the side of heaven. Anger, jealousy, pride, depression, despair, despondency, resentment. But what I want you to see, God's mercy enters in right there. With invitations to confess, wisdom for living, and most significantly, not just invitations or good, good advice, but a person, Jesus Christ. The blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel so that you and I might be set free and know what it means to live in communion and fellowship with him rather than running as far away from him as we can. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for this story as tragic as it is and yet we pray that your mercy your mercies which are new every morning would come shining through not just in in the story from the pages of your word but that you by your spirit would do that in our hearts and lives father we ask that your mercy would be louder and more uh, real to us than even our anger and our hardness of heart and the various ways in which we refuse your invitations and your kindness despite our sin and disobedience. Father, we, th- we pray all of these things because we know that you are about the work of uh, renewing us, giving us new life as your children through faith in Jesus. And we pray all this in his name. Amen.